Hi, this is Jim Lyon. You're listening to Viewpoint with me today, Kimberly Majeski. Hey there, Jim. Hey, Kimberly, we've been talking about The Incredibles for weeks. This is a, an animated film. Kids love it, and even yeah. some of their parents, if the truth be told. That's right. It's about a family who have some kind of superhuman powers. Mm-hmm. They live like ordinary folk during mm-hmm. the day, but every now and then they suit up in their spandex, and they're out fighting crime and making the world a better place. That's right. Do you have a copy of this film at your home? I have access, let me say that. <laughs> you have access, because you have a four-year-old who's That's into right. it, and many kids are, and I think all of us have a little bit of a kid inside of us that wants to be that incredible, don't we? Mm-hmm. Truth be told, though, you can be incredible. And the world's history is populated with stories of incredibles who may not necessarily have superhuman powers in the way we think of a superman or a supergirl, but mm-hmm. they have the capacity to influence far above and beyond what by any human measure could be achieved. And one of the most dramatic illustrations of the incredibles in real history is the story of the early Christian church. The early centuries of the Christian era, where the whole civilized world of the Roman Empire was turned upside down by a group of people who, by any human measure, did not have the wealth, the education, the status, or the power to do anything of consequence, and yet they overturned the empire. A civilization was lost and a new one reborn consequent to their influence. How did they do it? That's what we're talking about. Why? Because I'd like to be incredible today. What could I learn from them? Kimberly Majeski, you teach at a university. You teach both in grad school and undergraduate courses. You're steeped in history and certainly are familiar with the ancient Roman world. What was that world like uh, before the Christians came to town? How would you describe it? Let's see. It was lustful and bloody and violent and competitive. It was status-oriented. It was a situation where people in power were the people who had money. And the people were who were on the bottom couldn't get any power and couldn't raise themselves, right, in that system to a place of power. They have no access to government. They have no access to bettering themselves. And they are literally at the mercy of those people, that very small minority who are wealthy, who are able to make decisions that affect everyone. And so the poor stay poor, and the uber-wealthy stay uber-wealthy. There is no middle in between. The poor are hungry and the wealthy are partying. And the wealthy are a tiny percentage of the whole. There's there's no balance here. I mean, it's way disproportionate. But 8 to 10% of the population is uh, on that top sort of financial cusp, yeah. And so when I look at television series or films that represent that period of history, those mm-hmm. period films, you know, sometimes I look at it and think, boy, I, I could... Th- I could get into living this way. You know, I see people in their colonnaded homes Mm -hmm. and they're wearing loose-fitting clothing in a Mediterranean climate with a warm sunshine on them and, and, you know, plates of grapes. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) know, I'm looking at it thinking, wow, that Roman world wasn't so bad. But I'm hearing you say, very unlikely if I lived then that that would be my journey. Very unlikely. And, you know, we have artifacts, um, uh, documentation and pieces of uh, letters and stellas that are left behind that tell us that, People, poor people wanted to become slaves. 
They wanted to be imprisoned because at least they were fed. Because at, it was predictable th- food. Yeah, there was a, they knew that they would have a, a meal. They knew they would have shelter. And so those options were favorable than to just be um, the, the general population lost in poverty. That Roman world you just described, Kimberly, with such stark relief is the world into which Jesus was born. That's right. And that's the world into which his disciples walked and the generations of Jesus' followers Mm -hmm. after them that turned that world upside down. But it was a very hard world. And the people who became the Incredibles, if I can turn the phrase, Mm -hmm. are people who had no resources. They didn't have capacity. That's right. As you just described— the people of the disciples' era in the Acts of the Apostles and the generations following, their greatest aspiration might be to become a slave, so at least I could have a meal. Right. Think about a world like that Mm -hmm. and how everything has been changed. None of us today would imagine that to be normal or healthy. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the Incredibles reset Mm. the way in which we have social, legal, and justice expectations, reset the concepts of economy and economics. I mean, the Roman world was changed, so was ours. Mm. But how do they do it? Why? So (laughs) we have been looking at a book. Yeah. It's called The Triumph of Christianity, How a Forbidden Religion, because the Christians were persecuted, it was against the law to be one. How could that forbidden religion sweep the empire? How did that happen? Mm. The author of the book, Bart Ehrman, is... An academic, he teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He is an author, both to an academic clientele and to a popular culture as well. Yes. Very successful, brilliant, but he's not a believer. He's not sure there even is a God. He describes himself as an agnostic atheist. Mm -hmm. And he has written this scholarly work, which also is easily accessible for people who may not have graduate degrees, about how is it that these people achieved this He doesn't believe that God's hand was on it because he's not even sure there was a God. He's not buying the idea that it was politically advantageous for people to embrace Christianity. No, that came much later. There was no cause for someone to embrace this religion so you could become more powerful. No, it would be the opposite, Mm -hmm. the, the truth. How is it then that these people were such incredibles? And he's identified six reasons out of history, legit history, about why he thinks it happened. I'm fascinated by it because I think it speaks into our present day. Our world is increasingly becoming a mirror of a Roman world, really. Mm. And how is it that we could be Incredibles? How do we influence for the good? Well, today, we're going to talk about one of those six things. And it's kind of a numbers game. It's just the pure arithmetic of how you can persuade one person at a time and how exponentially that will change a whole community. Water you turn into wine You open the eyes of the blind There's no one like you None like you Into the darkness you shine And out of the ashes we rise There's no one like you None like you Our God is greater Our God is stronger God, you are higher than any other Our God is healer Our soul and power Our God 
Art Ehrman's book, The Triumph of Christianity, attempts to explore through secular history, why is it that the early Christian church overtook the Roman Empire? How could it be? How did these people that I've described as incredibles actually turn the world upside down? And one of his outcomes, one of his conclusions is simply pure arithmetic, that there's an exponential growth in any community if it just grows by a certain number of people each year. Right. Help me understand that. What's he saying? Okay, so let me give you what he says in terms of arithmetic. Ehrman suggests that if every 100 believers just won two to three converts every year, so just two to three people every one year. For every 100 people in a church, let's say. That's right. That the growth would have been 2.5% annually, and that just spread like wildfire. It's just like interest. It's just slow and steady. That's yeah. right. So if you, you put a dollar in the bank and get 5% mm-hmm. interest, then the next year you're going to get 5% on the new increase in your bank balance right. and so on. And there's an exponential growth to it. And he's just saying the Christian church apparently just grew at least by 2.5%, which turned into tens of millions in a couple centuries. Right. But he, he even goes back to the biblical record. Yes, 120 people, let's say, at the beginning of the resurrection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And we know that on the day of Pentecost, according to the biblical records, thousands of people were saved that day. They Mm -hmm. came to Jesus. They came to a knowledge, a transformational knowledge of Jesus. Well, obviously, that's greater than a 2.5% growth rate. Mm -hmm. But you just have to have a few of those in time. If those 3,000 people then became 30 congregations of 10 or 100 or whatever, and they they just began to get one person a year. Pretty soon, the whole place is taken. I mean, this is amazing when you think about it. And yet, wow, how did that happen? How does that even happen? Because I know a lot of groups of 100 people that persuade no one. I know a lot of small groups of all different stripes, and I'm not just talking about religious groups, that have very little influence because they're not bringing any new persons in. How is it that that first century church actually grew? And if you just believed in the arithmetic, how did they get one or two people every year in that group of 100, ah, there's some great illustrations of how that works right in the New Testament itself. That's right. As you're listening to our broadcast today, you may have a question or a comment you'd like to share with us, and we want you to know we're always glad to hear from you. We have a toll-free number. It works 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Just dial us up. Dial 1-800-757-VIEW. That's 1-800-757-8439. We're always by the phone. Whatever it is you have to say, we really want to hear it. We value your voice. Kimberly, you and I have been talking about how, by secular history, the growth of the Christian church, the influence of society, the, the actually transformation of a whole civilization took place, by some people's measure, by just the arithmetic If you have a group of 100 people that can get one or two more people every year into their group, that exponentially over time, you're going to overwhelm the larger world around you. And some people have argued that's what happened in the early centuries of the Christian era. I'm not quarreling with the fact that it grew, and it certainly grew according to that algebra, you might Mm -hmm. say. But how do you persuade someone, even if you're in a group of 100, how is it that you can persuade one or two people a year to join your group or to embrace your ideas? How do you influence that way? How about this story right out of Luke's gospel? This is Jesus 
the people of the early centuries of the Christian church saw themselves quite literally as followers of Jesus. In other words, they made it their ambition to live like he lived. That's well, right. How did he live? And they studied this story just like we do. And this is a story, a famous story, of Jesus in a town and how he's reaching out to someone who would not normally be in his groove, somebody who was not a part of his circle of friends, someone that nobody seemed to even like. And he makes the difference, and that guy then begins to change others. It's the story of a guy named Zacchaeus. It's in Luke chapter 19. What does it say, Kimberly? Beginning in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people were displeased. He's gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, I will give half my wealth to the poor Lord. And if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much. Jesus responded, Salvation has come to your home today. For this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Oh, my soul, oh, how you worry, oh, how you weary from fearing you lost control. This was the one thing you didn't see coming and no one would blame you, though. If you cried in private, if you tried to hide it away, so no. Stop believing Oh my soul You are not alone There's a place where fear Has to face the God you know One more day He will make a way Where fear 
there's a place where fear has to face the God you know. such a compelling story, Kimberly. It really is. It's so vivid as you're reading the text. I can see myself on a street somewhere, maybe in Jericho or (laughs) my town, and all the people were crowding about. And think about how many people we pass by every day in life. And what's striking to me is that Jesus on this street identifies someone who's outside of his normal circle of reference, someone who is the outsider, someone who is not welcomed or esteemed by other people on the street. He's choosing someone who's needy, yeah. even though that person is not manifesting it. He has material wealth. But but Jesus knows this is a person who's on the outside, he's on the fringes, and he's going to invite him in. And it's so extraordinary because as I'm walking with Jesus down the street in the story, I realize I often go down streets and I'm not looking for people who are different from me. I'm looking for people who are like me. Yeah. And this... Jesus doesn't roll that way. And the people of the first centuries of the Christian era were looking for people outside their communities too. In a world of scarcity, they were willing to tear down a wall of prejudice or prejudgment. They were willing to reach out across uh, the way to another people group because they understood that Jesus was for everyone, that God was not in favor of any particular group or class, that all were made in the image of God. So striking. You're right about that. And, and you know, even the religious leaders welcomed Jesus' care of the poor, right? That's something that they cared about, too. Uh, but the trouble here is uh, often Jesus would uh, interact with people who, of course, were sinners, Pharisees had no trouble if Jesus met with prostitutes and tax collectors if they were repentant. Jesus meets with them before they're repentant. But one thing we should say here, we talk a lot about Jesus' ministry with the poor, and that's very true. The people who are following him from town to town are people without means, largely, and um, that that's kind of his core group. But in this case, Zacchaeus is cheating those people. Zacchaeus is directly their oppressor, and Jesus is now reaching his hand out to him. Zacchaeus, who's taking advantage of the crowd, is now being welcomed by Jesus. Yeah. And this is a hard lesson for us because Mm -hmm. Jesus is going to take some heat for this, too, because the Scripture tells us even as he reaches out to Zacchaeus, he's got people now who are criticizing him because they don't like his choice of dinner guests. Mm -hmm. They're not in favor of his social list right now. And so he's going to pay a price in the esteem and relationships that he might have otherwise taken for granted Mm -hmm. uh, because of his choice. But the question before us in this text, as we're thinking about it today, is this idea that the early Christians, these incredibles, just won people over one by one Mm -hmm. into their communities of faith. Mm -hmm. And they did it not by simply finding people who already agreed with them, because that's not expanding the circle. They had to find people who are outside their way of thinking to bring them in. 
And Jesus models that right here so well. The kingdom grows as it reaches and pushes out into the harvest. And he does that. And now think of this. So now we have Zacchaeus at the dining table with Jesus. We don't have a record of what he said. But somehow, whatever it is that Jesus said, however the conversation evolved, what is clear in all the stories of Jesus is that he calls the best out of people. Mm. There's a transformational intersection with Zacchaeus over the dinner table where Jesus is calling the best out of him. You can be more than this, Zacchaeus. Mm -hmm. You can be better than this. This town can be better than this. Something in the conversation is pulling Zacchaeus into a new way of life. He's being drawn into this new group Mm -hmm. of Jesus people. Yeah, this is powerful. And, you know, if I didn't know better, this would have been this probably was the reason Jesus had the intention to call Zacchaeus, because think of the impact just locally that Zacchaeus is now professing that he's going to give back half his wealth to the poor. And then if he's cheated people, and we know he has, if he's cheated people, he's going to give them back four times as much. I mean, just as we talk about mathematics, I mean, just the sheer impact on someone's life, on one person's life, that that would have, that kind of income being returned to them. Think about now all the people he's cheated in that little part of the world being touched by this kind of transformation. It's an exponential impact. That's right. And that's what's striking to me. Not only did Jesus reach out for that one person's Zacchaeus to have dinner outside of his comfort zone, you might say. Mm-hmm. Now that person is being called to a better life. And it's not just to comfort Zacchaeus. It's not just a pat on the back. Oh, there, there's Zacchaeus, Jesus saying, perhaps, we want you to know that we care about you too. No, Jesus, you can be better than this. It's, it's a deliberate invitation to a new way of life that's going to change you. That's right. It's not just some warm fuzzies. It's about changing you, Zacchaeus, mm-hmm. so that you can find life and give life. And Zacchaeus's testimony now is going to draw others in. This is the exponential pattern. That's right. Jesus brings Zacchaeus to the kingdom. He enters the kingdom. Now he's going to go outside the kingdom to all the people he's cheated and to the poor that don't even know anything mm-hmm. about Jesus. And he's going to help them along. And they're going to look at him and say, what has happened to you? I want to know more about the Jesus guy. And this is the premise of arithmetic right. in expanding influence. One by one, over the dinner table, in an intersection on the street, Mm -hmm. talking to people in a small crowd, a little group, that's how things grow. That's how the world has changed. And if I could just do that, I'm realizing that I need to do more dinner invitations to people that are not already known to me, to people that are not already close to me. We tend to operate in a world of community that already agrees with us about everything. Yeah. No, we need to reach out to people who don't agree with us, don't understand us, and see where that takes us in that ordinary course of life. Loving others like I love myself requires me to cross the street and reach out to Zacchaeus in a tree. Wow, how can we become Incredibles? This world is waiting for people who are going to invite them to dinner and call the best out of them. How can we do it? Start with prayer. Just pray with us right now. Take a deep breath and know we're going to talk to God. Our Father, we're so thankful today that you know us by name. We're thankful that you sent Jesus into this world to show us how to live. We are thankful for the story of Zacchaeus and what it teaches us. 
We pray, Lord, that our eyes will be opened in this week to come to find our Zacchaeus in a tree. I pray that everyone who's joining me in this prayer will, before one week passes, be able to identify someone that's outside of their ordinary circle that we can invite into a conversation to meet us for dinner at Starbucks, to just sit on a park bench, but do something where we get acquainted and share and call the best out of them so that the world might be changed for the good, that they might know your love and ours. And in so doing, Lord, may we not only give life, but find life. We surrender our lives into your hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a small step, really, what we've just prayed for, but I think that God hears our prayers and will answer them. Keep your eyes open. If you'd like to know more about what to do next or about how you might become an incredible in this world and and change it for the good, give us a call. Once more, our number, 1-800-757-VIEW. That's 1-800-757-8439. But Kimberly, I know some people may not be ready just yet for the phone call. How about online? Where would they find us? Sure, you can visit us online at cbhviewpoint.org. Send us a message and we'll respond. Absolutely, CBH, Christians Broadcasting Hope, viewpoint.org. If you prefer, just send me a letter. Address it to Jim Lyon, Viewpoint, Post Office Box 2420, Anderson, Indiana, 46018, USA. But whether you give us a call, check us out online, or use the post, please. Let us hear from you this week. Kimberly, so glad to be in a room with you. You're an incredible. I have no doubt. (laughs) My suit is in the closet, let me say that. There we (laughs) go. And Zacchaeus is waiting on a street for both of us, all of us. This week, we hope you find that open door. For all of us at the Viewpoint Ministry team, this is Jim Lyon. Thanks for joining us today. And for all of us at Church of God Ministries, which is the host of our broadcast, we hope you'll be with us again next week. And until then, stay tuned.